Welcome to another episode of Zero Emissions, a podcast about sustainability in the built environment. So this week's episode is about the challenges and opportunities of low impact building in the sphere of self-build with Tara Fraser. Now, Tara is a chartered civil and structural engineer, and she's a director of Build Collective in Bristol. It was Beth Williams from an episode we did last year suggested that we speak to Tara. So recently, Jeff and I had a chat with her about a bunch of things, but in particular, a self-build project that she's been working on that should find its way into the pages of Passive House Plus. And while we were doing that, it seemed like there was something interesting to talk about for Zero Ambitions too. This explains why at the start of the conversation, Tara starts talking about the building without introducing it. It's because we've been speaking about it the day before. Anyway, we felt like it'd be an interesting subject for a conversation because of the impact that structural engineering can have on our project, for good and for ill. This is particularly the case in the green building space because, as we discussed in the warm episode with Pit Warm and Sally Godber, it's the self-builders who are often the pioneers. So in turn, we were intrigued as to what lessons might be taken from the self-build experience that can be used elsewhere, you know, by larger scale builders, developers, whatever. I mean, there's always plenty to learn wherever you look. Just a heads up, it's a pretty nerdy one. To be perfectly frank, I got lost on plenty of the detail, so I just held on to the themes instead. Don't worry about the detail too much if it doesn't come to you. But yeah, we talk about approaches to building geographic specificity, insurance, engagement with clients and suppliers. And we end the conversation on a, a pretty wild policy position, which is interesting, like in a good way, not interesting. I can't think of anything else to say, it's like properly interesting. Um, you join us while we're getting into a bit of embodied carbon gossip. Now, I had to cut out the references that might reveal whom we were gossiping about or critiquing, rather. I'll just mention that in case you feel like you're missing a bit of the conversation, because uh, you are vindicated. You are. Sorry, but it still felt like it was worth keeping in. Right. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Oh, God. Right. Uh, this touches on a, a, a separate issue. Um, I was talking to an architect, um, uh, I'll be close to John Moorhead, yesterday, and um, our building regulations in Ireland have historically tended. Should we? Are we? We are recording now, so I don't know whether. Now obviously, yeah. there's still start to, to, to the high embodied carbon. You'll want to, us not to reference. Yeah, I'd rather not talk about. It. I'd rather not speak of it. You know, but I think that it's part of that industry concept around we stick to what we know. Yeah, and we see a lot of that, particularly yeah. in engineering, where we stick to what we know. Now, I I did go to the architect on it, and I because I knew him personally. I said, "What were you doing?" You're going all this route for passive house, and then you stick all that concrete in it. What, what I was going to say was that um, part A of the building regulations in Ireland, which I, I, it's, I'm sure it's the same, it's it's structure. Um, part 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 A in in, yep. uh, in the UK in England and Wales and so on. But I, I wonder whether I should say his name uh, if this is being recorded. But an architect I know made the point that um, part A, as it stands, takes no account of interstitial condensation. In, in or there's no way to there's no requirement to quantify interstitial condensation risk, which could be a structural issue, I think. Um, yeah, it's in the wrong place, I would imagine. I mean, concrete's got a high pH of thirteen plus, so it should be okay for. Well, a concrete is yeah. This yeah. is one of the reasons why it's more likely that people will stick with but concrete. Timber, but then, but, yeah, and then again, you know, uh, look at um, sh show me uh, a house uh, uh, in Ireland or the UK, the normal house that doesn't have a timber frame roof, for instance. You know, um, it's 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 spray foam, spray foam insulation is a classic of that, isn't it? It ends up ca causing problems generally. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We've 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 seen um, often not generally like that's maybe too extreme a general. There are there are ways to work around it, obviously. Yeah. And there yeah. Are, there are, um, <laughs> You know, there there are companies who are trying to take a more responsible approach to ensuring that the timbers are protected, and uh, and some are looking to go even further in terms of um of uh, thinking about end of life, you know, uh, salvage salvaging of the roof timbers, which which is a fascinating thing to try and address with uh, with spray foam. But we won't I won't go any further on that without betraying any confidences. Um, yeah. But um, no, the the point is, uh, you know, whether it's a 
steel frame or timber frame, for instance, you know, if you've, uh, suppose you have a, a framed structure where you have an external airtight layer, you know, um, onto the, to the cold side of the insulation layer, what are the risks going to be there, you know, um, and should that not be a consideration within part A in terms of, uh, of possible corrosion of, of steels or, or, or the impacts on the timbers, you know? Um, I guess it comes back to that insurance. It's that, it's that insurance risk and who's going to take responsibility for things. Yeah. That we see constantly on all sorts. I mean, we've just renewed our insurance, probably renewing it today. It's interesting. As a structural engineer, we get architectural and structural engineering insurance. Oh, right. Oh, why? I think that engineering is considered higher risk than the architecture. But it, 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 that's what we always see. The title of is always architectural and engineering. Interesting. And you mentioned, Tara, that um, the premiums that you're paying now are they've gone up a, a, a touch over the last decade? Is that what you're yeah. So when I joined the practice, it was eight hundred pounds. Last year was sixteen thousand plus, and our renewal this year is going. Actually, our renewal this year has been actually the market's coming down now, so it feels like Grenfell and all the basement collapses and all the rest of it have actually calmed. That's kind of gone through now at some point. So we've got a quote for just under twelve thousand this year, which I feel good about. <laughs> <laughs> but i think the thing about insurance that people don't realize is there's excess so our excess is five thousand pounds so every claim there's an excess of five thousand pounds yeah that's a lot i mean if you're a poor practice that would add up quickly if you're a bad practice yeah <laughs> presumably <laughs> you're not suffering quite like that though like, yeah. so how much of a so like the, today we're, we're setting out to talk around self-build and the impact of or sorry environmental construction, energy efficient construction in the sphere of self-build and yeah. how low impact building affects uh, or the broader challenges of low impact construction. Like, and you were the, you were the folk that start at the, the ground level, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so on the job we were talking about, it was actually an existing building. The planning was to modify it, keep certain parts of the wall and then keep it almost within the form of the existing building. So that was what the planning got through. And I'm sure an architect and the planners could explain that process. Yeah. But they weren't allowed to make a hugely increase in volume volume in the property. Okay. But we were then trying to get a building that was energy efficient with an existing wall in the back. And the back wall was the boundary wall with the neighbor. What building is this? So this is Hot Hay, which is in Donington, which is just outside Bristol. It's a lovely little hamlet. It was uh, probably a building in the 1930s with a 1960s extension on it. The client took about five years to get planning, I believe, because okay. it's in a conservation, one of those nice little rural settings. And so they wanted to demolish it completely, rebuild it, have a two-story everywhere. And they end up having to almost like, they got a little bit of extra height, but they end up with that almost like a attic rooms rather than full rooms in some of the areas. With a so it ended up with almost the same footprint as the building, marginally extended on one end, which was the furthest away from the village, if you like. And so our job as engineers, we ran through quite a lot of schemes on that to give the architect an understanding of how we go about building it. Inter and we had an architect that was this was his first. He'd just done his passive house course. Yeah. So he's eager as mustard to kind of like, I'm gonna get this right. We started off. We started off with looking at timber frame. So yep. we looked at panelized systems, something like PYC. We looked at stick build. And then what happened was those were just too expensive. Okay. And what I, what they ended up doing was the client ended up finding a local builder and find out what the local building trade could do. So what we did was on that job, we went through all the people that we worked with and the ones we like to work with and the ones that do a good job. And we handed over those contacts and kind of said, well, here's, here's people we trust for foundations and here's people we trust for masonry walls and here's people we trust for timber in the local area that we encountered. And he went with the ground worker that does an absolute fabulous job. And it is fabulous. I mean, and he did the foundations, the ground floor, starter walls, and that came in budget. What kind of foundations did you go for? So we ended up with traditional strip foundations. Okay. So we ended up with a masonry build because that was the kind of local vernacular in the building trade in that area. Yeah. No one was willing to really do timber frame. 
Okay. Yeah, and then the issue I've got is when you've got existing walls and putting timber frame against it, you lose quite a lot of space trying to make sure that the that performance is going to work. Right. Because of that existing wall, we kept with masonry, and it was a cavity. It was cavity wall with insulation inside. And then a parge coating applied on the inside base to get your air tightness. And then it was super insulated floor slab. Yeah. Yeah. And in this situation, what do we do? It was concrete slab, insulation, and then floor screed to hold underfloor heating in the main areas. Okay. Standard concrete and standard sand cement screed? The screed was a pump mix. So something like you would get from a tarmac. Where they come with a wagon and pump it in at self levels. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, I'm just thinking in terms of carbon and stuff. Was that a consideration embodied carbon for, for the project at all? I th- no. The client was more interested about his, his energy in terms of living it. So yeah. yeah. Our, our typical client is usually someone that's made money in this situation. You've got two people. They've come together. They've known each other. They've been two families in the past. People have died, and they're like looking for their forever home. So they're looking at a house in terms of not just to live in now, but to live until the end of the life. So there's things like, how do we change and grow with the building? You know, if we can't yeah. make the stairs anymore, all those sort of things were considered in the design. Excellent. Yeah, they're essential and they're often kind of neglected. Like as, a, a, as a practice that specializes in innovation and low impact and things along those lines, does the client come to you with those things in mind? Like, are you chosen for that? I mean, even in this instance, were, were you selected because of that expertise or were you like a... It was our personal relationship with the architect and the architect wanted someone that could give them all those sorts of ideas and not just come back with one solution. Okay. In a case like this then, Tara, where it's a kind of conventional, you know, approach in terms of the, the substructure and the superstructure, should we say, um, at least, yeah. you know, at least superficially, uh, maybe a wider cavity and so on, I guess. But um, is there... If you have a structural engineer who doesn't understand the demands of things like Passive House, for instance, can they trip up a project like that? Can they make it harder to meet the energy performance targets? It depends, isn't it? I mean, we get, so we've we got something in tendering at the moment, and it's, it's all been set out as traditional masonry construction, and we're supposed to work within that zone, but now make it Passive House. We're going to struggle to figure out how to get that to work within that zone to vast. And what's the reason? Uh, it's just getting that insulation values up and it's like the party walls are just looking like traditional party walls they aren't considering thermal performance because each unit each unit each, each house unit has to stand on its own two feet mm. it's just like i mean i think another typical one is like balconies we would probably put the balconies on a separate structure and not try to tie them back into so you the don't worry about the proprietary thermal bridges and stuff like that for us you just uh, you, yeah you separate it out for that reason yeah just to keep and, and the other thing is generally with a client base, they'll go somewhere for a timber frame. And a timber framer, if it's, you know, a lot of timber framers will only quite literally, they want the either raft finish or a foundation up to a set level, and they will take over from that level. They'll build the frame. Some will put insulation in, some won't put insulation in, and then they won't consider canopies. They won't consider, you know, most of them canopies or, well, I'm trying to think. There's all the things that make the architecture more interesting in some ways. And more functional in terms of producing a building that doesn't overheat. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and also, it's absolutely critical. And and if it's stuff like overhangs, you know, you're talking about potentially protecting the building from the elements too. And, and I mean, the overhangs, you want to make sure they're not too bouncy, you know, but they don't have to comply to the rest of the building because actually the deflection limits, we haven't got plasterboard, we haven't got brittle finishes on them. So they do, they can move a bit more, you know? Mm. Yeah. But they're... We often find that those things get excluded, and then we've had a few jobs where that's all we've done is done the externals and added, you know, worked out how to get them added on, yeah, mm. on other jobs because they'll have gone for a certain supplier who'll do a design and build on the frame, you know, because yeah, yeah. like, it's five, six, seven timber frames in companies we we see regularly. They'll they'll do a turnkey package on a okay. passive device yeah. now. So, so the issue you were talking about in this case is is it that the that there's not been enough allowance made in terms of the width of the walls, or is this in terms of uh, you know to, to accommodate insulation, or is this the thermal bridging? At, uh, it could be at, both. Yeah, because you would you know if you're going to do it, you'd probably a teflo tie rather than a standard stainless steel tie. Yeah. 
Oh, just for Dan and for any uh, listeners who are not aware of it, it's a basalt wall tie that's kind of low thermal conductivity. I'm sure Dan is loving this degree of uh, of uh, energy efficiency <laughs> on Rackery. But this is this is grist to the mill for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm sort of I'm trying to hang on by uh, by my fingernails to the the subject matter, but I'm. I will bring it back to the broader issue in a bit. I'll yeah. let you finish your detailed chatter. You know, and there has been other jobs. And I think off the back of that one, there was one beyond that where we went to, we went with the jumbo clay block. Oh, yeah. Are you talking so, about like a Poroton block or something? Or, or yeah. uh, is it like a terracotta sort of block with uh, lots of honeycomb structure, uh, sometimes just with air uh, uh, gap, uh, cavities, um, sometimes with uh, with insulation like perlite fills of it? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And we've also seen some with a kind of rock wool finish. Oh, yeah. 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 So we've also seen that, you know, and we, we don't hold true to any one product. You know, we're not just timber. It's just like, oh, that situation, that was once again, we've learned to think about the geographical location and what skill trades are around that area for people to kind of work with. There's no point doing a timber frame if you're going to import a timber frame from 100 miles away. But this is sort of where I was my interest was going. Like, it, it's really interesting hearing... Uh, I mean, I say really interesting. It's really boring as well hearing like this this minutiae of how the thing is built and the material composition, all that stuff. But I'm curious about like because it's a really this is something that uh, Kelly Alvarez Doran spoke about the other week in part. In order to to build something really progressive, you have to have this. The stars have to align. You have to have a client that's interested, an architect that's capable, builders with the skills to do it. Engineers like yourself, or people with the capability uh, or enthusiasm, to willingness, learn, yeah, willingness, yeah, to learn something new or try something new or try something different, yeah. And I thought it was interesting that you, so you're describing what might be a familiar story of uh, people finding themselves sitting on a pile of cash wanting to build the forever home, yeah. And that is something that I mean, lots of us have heard about, and it's something that has driven passive house take up. Like in the UK, I've heard anecdotally from Passive House Architects. But like getting all the other bits to happen, like it's interesting that you've had, it sounded like the architect was driving this this alternative approach rather than the client. Is that the case? Like the client was concerned about energy consumption, but were yeah. they concerned about all the other issues? They were pushed, they were head towards passive. And then it was like what they could then afford, which was like a low energy house, if you know what I mean. It just yeah, like... Yeah. So you've end up with good U values in floors and walls and ceiling and roofs, and you then also end up with air tightness membranes, and then you also end up with that MVHR system built into that, with then a heating system. In their case, they barely really turn it on. In fact, the builder was complaining it was too warm when they were building it because it, once it what is enclosed, the windows were in, it yep. was warm. Yeah, that's what I'm interested in. Like how how does one go about? managing juggling all those balls because you've got a lot of balls to juggle and then you've got to pick which ones you want to end up with yeah so our client after getting through planning was you know barely got through planning and got to the point where there was a point where he, he was wanting to just sell up he'd got a price for an all-in build cost couldn't afford it would have meant they'd have had to take a massive mortgage out and i kind of said well why don't you self-build and he kind of looked he kind of looked at me a little bit like "Ooh." I'm not sure if I've got the skill sets. And I said, well, you know, there are courses that are available in Swindon at the National Building Centre where you get some introduction and in how to manage, budget manage and things like that. He's not a hands-on builder, but what he's done is he's taken each of the trades and broken the trades down rather than have an overall builder looking after everything and had that saving on each of the subcontracting packages. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like a direct labour self-build. It's 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 a, it's a you know, like a developer or... or, yeah. or project managing uh, yeah himself. and in his situation he was buying the materials directly and he was negotiating prices for block work and concrete and timber i mean you know he had a large finish on the timber well we you know we had, he had the worst was during covid you know and the prices were just rocketing so he was he was making or he there were certain things he was making orders on in advance to hold the price long enough so i mean it's a bit like every grand designs divorce project what you're describing. <laughs> I'm going to take this on myself. I'm going to get qualified. But I presume there's a happy ending in this story. Well, he might have, he, he wasn't so focused and he, he knew where his limitations were. So if he had a limitation, you know, we got to know him really well. And actually, once a month, we go up, have a chat, make sure he's in the right direction, 
he takes us to the pub and buys us some food. And then, and then he wasn't <laughs> always getting paid in the not normal traditional way. But they were lovely. They were lovely people, and it was just nice to help them out in some ways. It's a funny one that, like, I recognise that from my other life, just doing the marketing stuff. Like, the only way you can work out how to really help people properly and effectively is to get to know them. Yeah. Like, it's uh, what are often termed soft skills, which yeah. is a, a bullshit distinction, but man, no, they're just as vital. They're really important. I mean, so during this process, so over the last. 10 years ago, I used to work in big practice. I then came to small practice, had a bit of a life change. And in that process, I went to therapy. And then I, I trained to become a therapist. And I learned my soft skills. But as an engineer, we don't get taught how to deal with people. <laughs> we get taught how to deal with paper and, and calculations and drawings. And we don't learn how to deal with people. I mean, I think engineers, we're, we're really bad at boundaries. <laughs> you mean metaphorical boundaries yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah yeah absolutely yeah we're really bad at financial boundaries we're really bad at our communication with clients and and it's recognizing how each of us actually respond to people as well you know and and we don't and this is the thing we don't get on with everyone and that's okay yeah yeah well that's if it you, you know some people and, that are not worth getting on with <laughs> well this is the thing it's like you know some people don't get me and that's fine. You don't have to work with me. There's always another person to work with. Yeah. Why make it so hard that we you end up hating each other? <laughs> yeah. And in this situation, lovely clients got to know them. You know, you know, they invite us. You know, they invite us around for a meal to to wander around the house. You know, and all sorts of things. You know, it's that sort of people. Yeah. yeah. You're touching. And, you've touched on a really interesting point here for me, uh, which is um, retrovis and the fact that whether we like it or not. To tackle retrofit, we're moving people from a uh, in the const we're going to re require the movement of skills from a, a B two B sector, which new build construction is typically. Uh, you know, self builds can be a bit different, obviously. Um, to B two C, so you know, where you're actually an industry which many of the people within it don't necessarily have people skills, certainly not client facing people skills, are going to have to interface with people in their homes um and uh so you know we're thinking about it in the context of um one of the hats i wear is uh, the chair of the heat pump association of ireland and we're looking at, at how to assist the state to achieve enormous heat pump retrofit targets so we've got four hundred thousand heat pumps uh, to retrofit by 2030 in a country of five million people you know it's the scale of it's mind-boggling and in order to do that Bearing in mind that looking at the heating contractors that you've got at your disposal and as it stands, you've got kind of three categories, the ones who are working on sort of data centers and so on, the ones who are working on big the new build schemes, and then people who are actually already working in, in existing homes, you know, um, not they necessarily all have it right in terms of, you know, uh, we're replete with issues in our industry in terms of people bad customer experience of dealing with, uh, with, with trades and so on. So there's that. Um, but you're then trying to bring a whole, you know, bring across to, to, to get the capacity we need people from other sectors who might have or be able to obtain the technical skills, but the people skills, um, that, that element is something we really, really need to grow. So I wonder uh, if you're dealing in, in engineering with people who either professionally or, or in terms of their own background and who they are as people are more drawn towards numbers than conversations and stuff like that, how you ensure that that engineering doesn't get properly doesn't doesn't get neglected in in these kinds of sectors. How how you ensure that it that it, that it has the role that it should have, you know, to ensure these buildings actually work. Yeah, I, I think the challenge is in in many ways, engineers we hide ourselves underneath the rock somewhere. We are not very good at coming from underneath the rock. Let's be honest. We're happy to you know, we see it where you know we'll get other people's packages and it's like. We're treated like computers, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> Someone hand you a package through a letterbox, and then we hand it back out through a letterbox. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. you know, we get people that phone up and say we just want a beam design. Yeah, and mm -hmm. you're like, we can't just do the beam design. We've got to check the foundation. Oh no, no, we just want the beam design. We can't do that. And people get upset because they think, well, I should just be able to order a beam, and you should be able to just sign me, decide me a beam, and we we won't do it because at the end of the day. We don't check the foundations and do the foundation design. You're liable, right? Well, yeah, we're back to your insurance. And then, yeah, where's my insurance? Yeah, <laughs> and it's a steel beam. It's four hundred quid design or whatever. Let's say 
you know, we'll give PI cover at 10 times. That's £4,000 potential of paying back out again if that if that wall start packing or there's a bit of movement in the floor. But it's like, well, the, but the builder says we just need the steel beam design. They'll sort the rest of it out. Mm. It's just, I think it's interesting that because you've got grand designs and you've got all these pro- programs of property that I think everyone feels really comfortable in. They think we can do everything ourselves. Yeah. So how should people engage with practices like yourself to get the best out of them? Well, we are trying to figure that out as well, to be honest. I mean, what we're trying to do now is we're trying to say, right, okay, we're going to we're going to do a bit, be a bit like a lawyer for practice and kind of say, come and have a chat with us for 15 minutes and we'll just talk it through first rather than doing it on a phone or doing it through a load of emails or do it on a, a Zoom call or whatever, you know, and just get to know someone a little bit more and see the whites of their eyes and work out, do you want to work with me? Do I want to work with you? Are there services you could provide to potentially where you, know, you you set people in the right direction without taking on a full engineering role, or is, is that something you? We do. We we sometimes. Uh, I think that's one of our downsides. I think we over give too much information away for free. But you can charge for it. Don't do. You have to charge for it as well. You know, uh, it's not a, you're not a charity, but there's got to be a way to have some sort of consultancy if there's a value in this. Um, well, uh, that's why we limit it. We're thinking about limiting the time to fifteen minutes because we should be able to find out what the kind of get an idea what the thing is really you know yeah we do something similar way we do ux clinic like what tell us what you think your problem is and we'll sit okay. with you for 45 minutes and depending on who it's with we'll i mean you can give them loads of responses i mean loads of responses so to the point where they're unusable because you've demonstrated your aptitude for dealing with the situation and you couldn't possibly know what the right response is after 15 minutes because like you said like in our trade if it's dealing with a website or comms framework or something like you've got to work out where's it going to go what who else is involved in the project what else has to be dealt with in your state of affairs it's you you then add that extra complexity in there which is of course in the marketplace we work in clients think once they've got planning the architect's done their job <laughs> yeah. yeah and yet they don't realize and then they think well we just give that to the builder and then the builder says oh i need this and it's just like you just you're just heading down a route of pain really now you know because everything kind of there's no size i mean we see architects giving sizes away and you're thinking well who's the engineer well this, yeah. this is it i'd love to know tara as well um without you having to to slander or libel anyone Oh, you can if you like. Actually, you can. we yeah. might be liable. No, yeah, exactly. No, we, no, no. we would be. We so, would. We yeah. would be fine with you libeling yourself. It's just early yeah. <laughs> self-preservation. I'll try and make sure. I'll. I'll, I'll try and do the, the shit sandwich, or the, the. I'll keep it internal, and we'll blame ourselves. <laughs> um, but horror stories. The kind. What? What? What have you? Uh, can you think of anything? Any specific kind of engineering or lack of engineering horror stories that you come across on 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 buildings that and pitfalls that people should be aware of, maybe arising from that? So I've got an example where we've stopped it recently. Got, yeah. We were invite. We've been doing a set of barn conversions, a uh, five barn conversions. We got a London client. It had a London architect. It was, they wanted to kind of just do timber frame inside with a void and insulation, like like a PIR. And we kind of, we just walked, we wanted to walk away because did not want to have that timber in that situation where the condensation could build up and rot out the timber frame. Okay. And so we were like, no, we're not doing it. We, we either go down a diathenite route where you put the spray applied insulation to the inside face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And make sure the whole system is a breathable system. In which mm. case, the timber then can sit in that location and will not rot out. Mm. Mm. In that, is, this is a timber that didn't have like a ventilated space behind it. Is that right? Or yeah, there was no way to properly ventilate it without putting some sort of in, in mechanical ventilation system. And I'm not sure how many people want to have a, who's going to maintain it and who's going to look after it. And I think that's when when we've done surveys. I've done a survey. I did a survey of a, a bonded warehouse where I'd seen the consequence of this. Which is just a just you put the camera in the void and it's just full of black mold and you've got condensation that's coming through and having marks all over the walls after about five ten years. Mm. I don't want the, I don't want to get involved in that. I don't want to deal with that problem in ten years time. I, yeah, we've been writing about this in the magazine since before we were called Passive House Plus in cases like internally insulating 
single leaf walls like a block or or brick wall we had a sequence yeah. of articles that joseph little who's kind of we have to have joseph on the podcast i've probably said it a few times before it on on air um and um joseph did a, a sequence of articles that nearly killed me ended up being his thesis uh called breaking the mold and um they get cited in in academic papers and stuff um and uh led to the the code of practice for retrofit uh in ireland being being published um uh where he showed uh, when you increase the insulation to even quite moderate levels uh with internal insulation um you have uh, a really heightened risk he did some like woofy calcs this is yeah. 13 14 years ago or something like that um woofy calcs showing uh the relative humidity behind the insulation layer and uh you know as i say even at modest enough insulation levels you were getting into real problems irrespective of insulation materials in that case I mean, there were some i think he showed um uh, there was calcium silicate board as one of the variables, which is the best performing. Yeah. But it, but again, that product is not it's not available at the kind of what would be regarded as normal U values of like a 0.27 U value, you know, typically. So because it's understood that you have to limit your ambitions in these cases, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, these issues, I'm just kind of waiting. Uh, I, I know. I know some people who are, who do expert witness work. I don't know if it's something that you take on uh, yourselves um, at Build Collective, but uh, I, you hear occasionally the odd story of of an absolute disaster in a building from somebody who's gone for it and tried to go low energy with without understanding the building physics end of stuff. Um, yeah, I uh, you wonder how many of these problems are there, you know, lying latent and waiting to kind of uh, become a scandal. Well, you've got you have got those ones that have gone through insurance, you know, and they're just timber put in the wrong place, isn't it? We have, we have huge arguments about timber being at ground level or even clay blocks at ground level and not having a step up where you put your DPCs and all the rest of it, you know. Yeah. We've yeah. Got, we've got, we had a job with the architect put the floor slab at, at flush with ground level. Okay. <laughs> and you're just like, really? Yeah, and the clients. I blame Michael in. Gove. You know, it's this uh, this uh, post expert era that we're in there. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just like honestly, we spent three months arguing about this, and the client was not unhappy with us. And we're like, I'm, we're just not putting our name to it. Oh, but you've got to. No, and then, but the supplier says you can't. So what we did was, this is my issue with some. The supplier was just getting a product that we went through and found out where the product was originally made. Found out the got the Danish manuals, got them converted through Google Translate, and it was like you just do not put it in that location. It's it, it's quite. They said it's not suitable for that location. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. we're going to you can't do it. Oh, but we the architect says we can, and I go let his insurance carry it because we're not going to put it in that situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At the same time. It's so frustrating that these kinds of things happen because, you know, um, with good engineering, we can point to, you know, extraordinary uh, examples of timber use in construction, for instance. Uh, I've been thinking of um, the the likes of the Norwegian uh, Stava churches that are like, you know, untreated timber churches, uh, timber frame, timber cladding that are like 700 plus years old, you know. Um, and in climates that uh, do have like horizontal uh, rain and stuff like that as well, you know. So when you have engineering know-how, you know, and th th this is one of the things that frustrates me too, is that the kind of issue, the response too often, Tara, to the kinds of issues that you're talking about is for people to just to go dumb and play it safe and, um, and you know, and throw and stick to stick to um, concrete, for instance, and, and uh, where... You know, and maybe high embodied carbon materials at times when uh, there may be, if we if we have the right expertise at hand, we can maybe start to do some things that are really, really low impact in terms of materials and really high performance. I don't know if it's something that you you know, you think think about. I mean, uh, do you? In fact, that's a question. Do you get into embodied carbon calculation as a practice? No, not yet. Yeah, okay. I'll be honest. I mean, I'm looking at. I mean, I'm I'm trying to look at my own house. I'm doing an extension, and I've just had a. I'm having a huge argument with planners at the moment because they want me to use clay tiles, and I'm like, I wouldn't like to use timber because I want to use reduced carbon. We don't care about that. And okay. like, what well, hope have we got, really? Yeah. Um. But uh, with regard to timber in buildings, I mean, do, do you are there projects you've worked on where you've tried to really push things to kind of find ways to use or to move away from like concrete foundations, for instance, or uh, uh... we have done we have done a job with no concrete foundations. Oh, go on. Yeah. So it was just a rear extension, and when we found it, we dug down to rock, we just built off the rock. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 
you would hope that that would be the the sounder structure beneath your feet there wouldn't you you would yeah but it's pretty obvious once you've said it (laughs) how how do you check how far down the rock goes this might sound daft but like can you not look around the ground and figure out what's our movement you've got around the around the site you know is it a slope stability issue you got level ground all those sort of things you know once you dug it you can inspect the whole thing have you got rock all the way around yeah yeah I mean, I'm only applying my scant demolition knowledge of looking at concrete slabs. <laughs> there, there is a no, no. Hold on, now. There is a article. There is an article now. I did do this on another job where I had. You can spread. You can use even. If you've got a lens of stone. You can assume it spreads the load out as well. Okay. Yeah. 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 To, I used that. I used that a long time ago in a old folks' home for a sunroom. Mm. Yeah, it was clay, but it had lenses of sandstone. So I just, there was a, there's parameters. I'm trying to remember where the parameters were now. Common what document was, but there's a document about what you can and can't do with stone if you want to do it. And that, if you know what that. I mean, this is the thing, like we are disinclined to work with our surroundings mm-hmm. since. So the, the oil age architecture has encouraged us to impose our will onto our surroundings because the energy required to do so was cheap. And yeah. it feels like an awful lot of the skills that. You can see, so like Jeff was referring to the 700-year-old wooden churches and the like, or the old stone structures you see knocking about the country until they get yep. knocked down. They are testament to abilities that have been lost, lost that need to be reclaimed. Kelly's granddad's cabin that was built on piles driven into the ground. It feels, it feels peculiar that we have to relearn this stuff and that there is a, a heightened sense of risk involved where there is potentially less risk we've got to think about i guess as engineers we think first and foremost about how to protect our insurance in some ways <laughs> yeah yeah that's because that's a low impact solution isn't it but and, and then it's like having a conversation with a client to see what their aspirations are we could do this but there might be an, a slight risk but the other thing is that clients don't realize that even a standard foundation, you're like, you're like 25 mil movement in the ground condition. Mm. I'm fascinated by this insurance thing, though, because um, the sense post-Grandfell has been that you would expect the actuaries and so on working in insurance to have a much, to have a really good grasp of what the, of what real risks are, rather than just to take a kind of a very blunt approach and just uh, panic and 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 you know effectively ban. Know, uh, the use of certain materials or, or make it prohibitive, you know, and impossible to effectively impossible to use. But, you know, and, and to create a situation where irrespective of the expertise of the people involved in a project in terms of their understanding of the risks, uh, you just basically can't use certain materials. Uh, uh, but right, so, do you not think Grenfeld and things like that are usually come down to this cost, this cost, this well, they call it value engineering. It's got no engineering value at all into it. It's all about how much cost they can save. Yeah. And it's about, you, because you provide a compliance specification and a compliance set of drawings in the bigger project, and that gets handed to a contractor. And we're so used to design and build. Mm. And contractors are so used to kind of going for alternative supplies and potentially offering a part of the saving to themselves and part of the saving to the, the client. And... You know, I've worked in big practice. At that point, you kind of think, well, that's their design responsibility now because that's no longer my design. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's a good point. But what I'm getting at is, I mean, I absolutely recognize the problems that you're talking about. They're, they're, uh, you know, real kind of structural kind of issues with with construction in general, Mm. uh, both proverbially and literally. But uh, there has to be a better way, a way where, you know, for instance, from an insurance perspective, you, you should be able to have an enlightened insurance provider who, who, who can recognize, okay, this approach and the expertise underpinning this approach in a, in a given case, we know the risk is extremely low and has been properly assessed. Um, yeah, but what's happened, I think, is the government's now put onus back on the supplier to make sure the product is used in the most appropriate way as well. So they, there's now a direct link back to the supplier now because the supplier yeah. used to hide behind the subcontractor and it was the subcontractor's insurance. But of course, most contractors are small, small businesses and they just pull the plug if they start. If they, if they, you know, it's cheaper to go bankrupt yeah. than it is to deal with an insurance claim. So going back to something we spoke about a long time ago or for a long time on the podcast about this is Duncan's bugbear, uh, Duncan Smith, the founder of the podcast, uh, who is at River Clyde Holmes. He was on an episode with us last year. He talked about the need for designers to be given the responsibility for a project. Yeah. Right? And 
as a Scotland consequence, got sorted. so and as a consequence, they have to maintain a presence throughout the project to mitigate the the negative impacts of uh, value engineering. Yeah, um, and the new building regs are headed in that direction now. The re- building regs have now changed. Excellent. Yeah, but and the bit you know what you know what they actually say in that regard, Terry. It, it, it's in terms of what the responsibility of the building control now is. So building control, as I understand it. It might be wrong, is that they cannot approve alternatives. They have got no authority to approve alternatives. Alternatives have to go back to the original designer. Oh, that's magnificent. Yeah. And you've got to think of a building control inspector is now holds their own responsibility as well. So they've got to be qualified and hold their own responsibility. So when it when an architect so in that scenario, an architect who is the originator of the building design comes to you yeah. to support them on the engineering. Yeah. How do you split the responsibility for the design under those circumstances? Because if they're looking to you for to augment their expertise because they don't have enough to be able to try innovative practice. So, you know, they've never used ground screws before or they've yeah. never built on rock before and you... You, you guys, with your experience, uh, enter the fray with supreme confidence. How does how does liability get shared then? Well, we're responsible for the thing that stands up, aren't we? So foundations, you know, right. foundations are going to be an interesting one because until you've got a screw, so a screw pile, you're going to have to get someone to test the screw pile to give you a load carrying capacity. Mm. And then once you've got that load carrying capacity, you can then work how many screw piles you need to keep that building up. It what just, about if it's something like interstitial condensation then? You know, which could have, uh, to, well, if it has a structural implication. Yeah, Sorry? but from our perspective, is someone needs to do WIFI calculations, and we we do push that. It's like you need to go and get this done, or you need to get that done, because actually we reckon, you know, that's what we do. We see a problem, we kind of go, well, you need to go and get this done. Yeah, are you or are you sure about this? You know, and we we spend probably too much time sometimes, kind of going, we don't like the look of this. Are you really sure you want to do this? <laughs> yeah. And kind of go, we really want you to go and talk to get your, go and check your PHP model or whatever else it is and make sure your WIFI calculations are actually all in order rather than deemed to comply, if you like, which is a quite nerve wracking way to think about things, I think, in many ways. <laughs> um, and are you doing that because you're good people or because, uh, because there's also a, a do you, like, would there, would there be a liability issue if, as an engineer, you just missed this because you hadn't thought about the the structural implications of where the insulation sits in the wall, for instance, you know, and and where the dew point is going to be occurring and so on. We're not sure. We're, we, we're still trying to work out where that liability ends. Yeah. Our mm. design is to make it structurally sound, to make it stand up. The problem is we've got bits of knowledge and a bit of knowledge is dangerous sometimes, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and I guess that's where we end up doing this kind of like, are you sure? Are you thinking about it? I'm just, you know, I'm doing a job in Brighton and it's got that. It's building a timber frame against three solid masonry walls of three houses. Okay. And trying to work out the head of void. And then, are you sure that void is going to ventilate appropriately? You know, yeah. and those sort of thing. Do we do this or do we do that? And it's like, so they've gone back and they've gone and made someone double check what their calculation is. And they come back now with a different type of insulation product. Yeah. in that situation so this is this is an instance where uh one of the aphorisms we use i use getting things wrong is part of the process does not apply here no <laughs> <laughs> you stand up in court and say that Dan. yeah um, i think we can only use what we know about yeah and i guess it's like i guess we don't want to be the one like in uh, where we're having to knock down schools in cambridgeshire or wherever else that's going on you know because they had yeah. the timber they rotted out even yeah, more than black as well. There's that other issue too. Uh, yeah, well, the state's you know, perfectly capable of neglecting schools to the point of the moment to be demolished on their own without your help, Tara. Yeah, and then I mean, Bristol's got. Uh, I don't know if you know about it, but there was a set of house, series of houses being built by an insurance company, and there was supposed to, people were supposed to move in at beginning of 2023 before the mortgage went up, and then they discovered there was a detail fault in the whole system, which meant they had to then they had to re- go back through. The, they still haven't got into the houses yet. I'm in 2024. Oh, God. You know, I think a lot of this is about, you know, it's like people have to think about what they're doing. Yeah. And if you're doing something different, you you know, it's like, it's all well and good to kind of go, I'm just a structure engineer or I'm just the architect. And I think there's a lot of that goes on as well. I've done my bit. Mm. Yeah. And and I I think we do annoy, I I think we're very good at annoying people sometimes when we get that kind of, are you really sure? And they go, well, what's that to you? We just want to make sure it's right. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's such a strange thing uh, to, to want to do. You know, but people don't want to know. They, they just want a yes. They don't want a well. We're not sure, or that doesn't look right. They want. They just want. You know, it was a breath of fresh air. I'd uh, I'd I'd do design for a screw part my installer, and he he said, oh, I want to do this. And I said, not over my dead body. He's like, okay, that's fine. And we, I said, but you can do X, Y, and Z, you know? And it was, he was trying to put timber right next to the ground. I'm going to, no, we're not doing that. It's the wrong place for it. You haven't got a void. You haven't got the ventilation. We're just not doing that. Man, this is such a common refrain. Like, as a, as a professional, like, give me the problem. Don't tell me what solution you want from me. Ask me what the right solution is, and we'll work it out together. Mm. I was going to ask you, which we will come to, because like looking at the time, we need to think about winding things up. Like, based on your experience, can you offer advice to folk who are beginning a project? Like, how can they think about how can they approach low impact building? How can they approach if they're seeking to reduce carbon? So, thinking about innovative ways of ensuring the structural integrity of the building without mm. using concrete or doing things or just doing things differently they just need to think about the building that where where they're going to be building because actually the ground is going to be one big thing if the ground conditions are lousy you probably are going to be using some sort of screw pile or something more complicated in the ground once you get above dpc you can do everything anything you want but yeah. up to yeah. that point the foundation package you know is the is the highest risk item of the, of the project. So mm. under those circumstances, so like in a theoretical situation, yeah, down with that, no problem. But something you alluded to earlier was working with your client to assess the quality of expertise and labor available within their locale. Yeah, yeah. So you spoke about the vernacular, the building vernacular for that location. Yeah. You, you, you designed a building to suit their, those circumstances? Like, how how should people go about that, even? It, it's just finding out who... I mean, it's about finding out who's built around them, what materials are around you, what you're going to be able to build with, because yeah. actually your planning is going to maybe put a limitation on what you can and can't build with. Yeah. And what skill sets you've got in the local building trade. Because there's no point in specifying something you can't get built, and you're going to have to get something from... Dundee to come down and put a zinc roof on or whatever it is. I know. I would say um, uh, the point you made before about about in this context about uh, transporting like a timber building from 100 miles away. So from a carbon perspective, that's actually probably not terribly problematic. Um, when you do that, when you do the number crunching on this, um, I've been surprised. Depends on the material. Certain heavy, bulky materials, if you're transporting them even quite short distances, the the the, the carbon the embodied carbon figures can really rack up. And there's some people that I know um, Beth was working with uh, this uh, We Build Eco crowd um, in, um, uh, uh, where are they? Based in, what's, is it Sussex or Suffolk? I can't remember. Um, which is this, um, with Antoine um, and yeah. uh, Will Kirkman and so on. And they they had done some analysis showing that having a pre-cut kind of flat pack style timber build system yeah. uh, versus sending a complete panel out, uh, they reckon it was, one truck where six otherwise would have been required you know yeah, yeah. Uh, so so there is that there is that as a consideration but and there's also then your site boundary limitations can you if you're going to do a paralyzed system can i get a crane on site exactly yeah yeah, yeah. No, very good point and it's not all just about carbon as well obviously there are other there are other issues to consider here in terms of supporting local supply chains and so on i suppose um, yeah and concrete isn't you know concrete with a you know a high percent of a GGBS in it. It's got a lower carbon content. You know, it's not perfect. It's got issues in terms of it could be a more dusting surface. Yeah. But it's like putting the right material in the right place sometimes. Yeah. So when you're surveying, how far back do you look? Like, I mean, historically. Like, is that part of your process to look at the... the? Because if you look at the building vernacular for the last 30, 40 years, it's all wimpy. But if you look our client, beyond... I, I, I guess our clients don't build next to a wimpy house, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, what we might end up was a barn conversion. Yeah. So you might have a steel barn conversion. Yeah. And it might be a park queue planning application where you've got to keep the structure. Yeah. We've done a few of those now. In those situations, what we've done is actually we've just introduced the timber frame and the timber frame takes over from the steel and the steel stays there. But it's no longer part of this. It's no longer functioning. It's just, it's just held there because that's part of the planning application needs to be. But it's like, 
we live in Bristol. Bristol, we we know there's quite a lot of timber supply specialists around us. You know, it's it's got it's got quite a lot of good supply for that kind of option. But in the case of Hodge Hay Guy, uh, John, he wanted to work with a local community. He wanted to make sure that the builder was local because then it really helped him integrate into the community eventually. And from our perspective, he learned when he was looking at walls, when someone was knocking the snots off in the walls, he got rid of the guy. He got someone else in. He, he, we kind of gave him what his parameters were and he stuck to them. I remember you yeah. talking about that. You described him uh, instead of hiring a crane, getting a local farmer. Yeah, yeah. So, get the forklift in and get the the timber, the glue lamb timber timber up on the you know, and and on that one, instead of be having people that working at height, get the Rotherblast catalog out, get some of the fixings pre built in, and they just drop up and slot in, and they two screws at the bottom, and since and the, the builder was hating it because he goes, oh, I can just screw it through. Now, apparently, on all his jobs now, he's he's kind of going, I'm going to use a Rotherblast fix because I don't have to hang about on the top of a ladder for, or put scaffolding up to get it. Lovely. Wow. Yeah. Amazing benefits you can get through through knowing your spec, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, and that that's just, uh, I think that's the other thing, you know, is fixings. Not all fixings are comfortable. It's a big bugbear of our business that if we specify a product, we specify a product for a reason. Yeah. Mm. Just because you can see something that looks similar at Screwfix does not mean it's, it's comfortable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It should have a UK CE marking for, in the case of the UK, you know? We have um, I have to learn more about the details of it. But we have a building we're going to be publishing in the magazine uh, by a, a wonderful volumetric modular um, manufacturer called Idan Designs from County Roscommon, and it's a school building. And there's a bunch of great things about this system uh, in terms of uh, use of biogenic materials throughout. You know, um, uh, cellulose and wood fiber and 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 large cladding, charred large cladding, and then they've got um, uh, wooden screws. The first time they've okay. used wooden screws on 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 a project like this, I need to understand precisely where. But they're, th- they're starting to think about about the end of life, and this 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 comes about partly because they're inclined to think this way anyway, but partly because um, getting embodied carbon calculations done makes you think about you know the end of life salvageability of uh, of materials. You know, uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah. And the impact of that product going through into insulation. I mean, a screws, uh, either stainless steel's got different performance to steel, and yeah, something's wood in a dowel. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, with that sort of what feels like a natural pause, I'll I'll give us an exit quickly. So, Tara, thank you very much for joining us today. Do you do you have anything to plug? No, we're just head head down working all the time. To be honest, <laughs> that's a problem, you know, but. We'll talk to you about some projects, Tara. You know, uh, we'll look at uh, extracting something from your yeah catalog. You know, I'm going out and talk, I'm talking to a few of the architects. So there's an architect who did a self build as well. Two project, two properties. Now they're low, they're low energy as well. They were jumbo clay blocks. Yeah. Now they were disa- they were a disaster in many ways oh. in terms of the supplier. The product right. mm-hmm. the product would have been okay, but the supplier was horrendous. He just he just measured up through all the product on the site, twenty percent damage on it. Oh Didn't refuse to replace any damaged stuff. Mm. Yeah. And it was in a the you know, and it was like it should have been a simple build. I would never use that product. I won't just won't go near that company again. But you know, there are other suppliers of different products and they are okay. And we're kind yeah. of like I'm, yeah. my understanding with those blocks is we have published them at times is that um because uh, they tend to come with kind of thin joint mortar and stuff like that as well. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that the act, the quality of workmanship is essential? You know, I've seen some messy looking jobs. Uh, you really need to to have. They, they seem to be a little bit less forgiving in that regard uh, than. Uh, well, than... It, the bed's one mil, isn't it? So you do, you don't have any. There's no intolerance built into that bed. Yeah, but they can be. They can be. They're very effective. Uh, I. I I, I need to get into some number crunching on them because I, I haven't seen embodied carbon f- clay blocks and stuff. Uh, if fired clay can be quite high embodied carbon process. Yeah. Um, and these are all come from Germany, don't they, at the end of the day? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that that probably, that, I mean, they're not massively heavy, I wouldn't have thought, but still uh, there could be a, be interesting to run the analysis, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of our jobs end up with, you know, you've got, you've got embodied carbon, but I guess more of our clients are, is it, there's also that cost element as well at the end of the day, how much of your mortgage are you got? You, know? you have to operate in the real world with these things, you know, for sure. I mean, you know, the, the, the lovely thing with embodied carbon ultimately should be that in, in many cases, 
if a product is low embodied carbon, that also means it should be low, a lot of the time, at least not always, but it'll be low embodied energy too. Um, and if it's low embodied energy, then the manufacturer had to spend less energy uh, in producing it, which should mean that, that that's at least one cost that's lower from their perspective. So sometimes a lower embodied carbon building uh, doesn't necessarily mean a more expensive building, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think our governments, I think, I don't know, I think governments are missing a trick here where they could, they could start thinking about the carbon content of product and basing vats on that rather than yeah value added tax is based on the goods being more than what you need you know they're supposed to be like extra so the clothes aren't matteable but you know you want to have carbon added tax cash instead of vat that's it yeah, yeah. that would be i mean <laughs> it would be a desperate hit on our pockets but in, enormously beneficial for depends on what you do dan it depends well, on what, what purchasing well, decisions you make well for the existential issues like it's it's all well and good having more tellies now, but what good is more tellies going to be in a hundred exactly. years? Exactly, it would be a hit on your pockets, but at least you'd have a pocket. Yeah, <laughs> it, make, it makes you think. It just makes you think about when you're purchasing. It'll make every purchase you make have a have a different sort of financial challenge, won't it? Because not everything will be equal then, because they'll all be, you know. Yeah, most. It's stop bloody value engineering as well. <laughs> 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 well, no, I, I think I think there'll always be value engineers, man. Where where we are, cost well, cutting is that. It needs to be. It needs to be transformed from the current epithet status to something much more meaningful, where you yeah. are delivering value to everyone involved. Like demand reduction is value engineering, really. But the two terms are far from synonymous now. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's the other thing. If you if you're building something in a factory, is that helping the local community? Yeah, and that's what why what um one of the things that, that Antoine and um uh, Chloe from Hitters, this is the company behind one of the companies yeah. behind Rebuild Eco, we're we're talking about is that you could have these floating factories so that you can you could be uh, assembling you know uh, on site or or adjacent to the site, yeah. uh, you know, with local supply chains, you know. So, sorry, with 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 local um local workforce, uh, even if the material some of the materials are coming further away, you know. Yeah, we did a project with the Hadley Steel. They wanted to do a similar idea with a low cost housing with metal frame, where the people who build it learn the skill sets so that they can bring that into local community in mm. areas that are deprived. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, those programs are brilliant. AC White does something similar with their retrofit contracting. Offering skills academies to young people and marginalised people, usually like ex forces, unemployed folk uh, yeah. in underprivileged communities, helping them develop some skills through which they can get employed and ultimately even start their own businesses. Once they know how to do the work, like if AC White train them, they're going to be comp competing with the best in the business because they'll yeah. be trained by their guys. That's how they see it. So raise the standard for all. Anyway, that's the digression. Right. So, last thing. Jeff, you got anything to plug? No. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tara. It's been really right. interesting. Yeah. Thanks a And, minute. yeah. Uh, all right. Join ACAN. Join the AECB. Join the IGBC. Uh, women, check her own space. Subscribe to Passive House Plus magazine. Uh, advertise in it if you can. So, uh, Bill Collective, you know, Jeff will speak to you about articles, no doubt, but you know, if you need to get your name out there, yep, it's a, a... If you're looking for an engineer that actually understands uh, sustainable building, you know, uh, yeah, you Build Collective are, uh, are that rare beast, yep. Just come have a chat. And website, buildcollective.co.uk, we'll put it in the show notes. Oh, uh, if you get something out of listening to this podcast, you probably know someone else who will as well, so please share it with them. Yeah, if you could review it, that would be great. I think that's it for now. Oh, and talk to us as well. If you want to talk about any of this sort of stuff, uh, drop us an email. Uh, we run clinics with people to help them assess things free of charge. I think that's it for now, isn't it? Anything yeah. else, Jeff? At some stage, it's probably worth us explaining uh, when you say talk to us that we have a consultancy off the back of the podcast and that we're helping people with messaging and communications and our, you know, understanding and putting the, the, the anarchy of sustainable building into kind of simple, clear terms, you know, and helping people understand where they are and with regard to that and how to, how to tell people about it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And not just with like deliverables, like communications, like uh, deep anarchy stuff, like from carbon calcs to, 
approaching sustainability strategy for an organization, specifically within the built environment. Um, Anyway, right, cool. Well, thank you. All right, cheers. Thanks for joining us at home. Bye.